Hey everyone, I'm Megan Teets, and this is Sorta Awesome. Welcome to the show that is all about uncovering the awesome in the everyday. Each week, my co-hosts and I give our favorite tips, share our best stories, and can hide our true confessions as we invite you to join us in the pursuit of awesome. This is episode 99 of the show, and I'm joined this week by my dear friend and lovely co-host, Kelly Gordon. And today, we're going to tackle a topic that might leave people feeling a little squirmy, but it is one that is so important that thoughtful, compassionate, and wise adults know how to have, how to have these conversations, how to talk to kids about their bodies, sex, and sexuality. Now, we know this is a big topic, so we are bringing in a special guest and a fellow awesome, Leanne Gardner, who is going to give us some tips, answer our questions, and bust some myths about talking to kids about sex. So be mindful of the fact that it's going to be a very frank discussion today. So if you want to plug in your earbuds or listen at a time when you can do that, just a little heads up on that. But before we get to all of that, Kelly, let's go ahead and start this show the way we always do with our Awesomes of the Week. What do you have this week? Hey, Awesomes. Hey, Megan. So what I have this week is something that we have talked about in the Hangout group occasionally. As I think most Awesomes know and most listeners, I am a news junkie. News is my background. I love to listen to news you know, on the radio usually because that's where you could get it. And people would say, what's a good news podcast? Yes. Right? So many questions about this. So many questions. And so what we had always said is there's not a great one. There is NPR and the BBC both have, I would recommend them, hourly short, like it's like their news that they would do at the top of the hour. And so you can subscribe to that and then just listen to the most recent one if you want just kind of a quick five minute headline. But I know that that's hard. It's cumbersome. They're releasing them literally every hour. So there's 24 new little podcasts showing up in your app, especially if you download. That's a lot of memory. So it wasn't ideal. So here's what I have found. There have been two new daily news podcasts that have come out in 2017 that I think are both spectacular, but I like one more than the other. Okay. The one that is my awesome of the week that I truly, truly love is the New York Times, The Daily. Oh, I have been hearing a lot of good buzz about The Daily. Okay. It is really, really good. In fact, it's kind of a newer form of journalism. They're calling it narrative journalism. Oh, okay. Okay, so it's not just the headlines. They are really doing, it's about a 20-minute podcast, Monday through Friday, although they just released this week that they're going to start doing them on the weekends as well. So coming soon to a podcast app near you, right? Um, It's a 20-minute podcast, and they really try to take the first 15 minutes and do a deep dive into what would be the big story of the day, Mm -hmm. Um, the big headline, that sort of a thing. And the reason they call it narrative style is that they have the New York Times. These are some of the best journalists in the world that they can tap into and say, here, tell me about this story that you wrote for the paper today. So you're not just getting the facts, but you're getting kind of that personal take on it, if you Mm -hmm. will. It's not that it's so much analysis or opinion, although obviously some of that's going to be in there. 
It's more just that personal take on it. And you're hearing the reporter's voices. So, for example, um, there was one that they did just recently that was on Venezuela. They did kind of a deep dive into what's happening in that country. So they talked to the reporter who's been covering Venezuela and the issues there for years And it is one thing to read a story about how the hospitals aren't working um, because, you know, the government is pulling money and that sort of thing. It's another to hear the reporter talk about the time that he talked with his own voice to a dad whose son died Mm. because there was no medicine at the hospital. You know, so you're you're really getting that personal. You can hear the expertise in their voice. These are not just fly in reporters. These are people Mm. who've covered these issues for a long time. So they just have such a good take on it. And it's really so fascinating to me to do that deep dive. So the daily it's Michael Barbaro, who is the one who's hosting it. Um, But again, pulling in all sorts of New York Times reporters, they do do a quick at the very end headline summary, like here are the news headlines that you should be paying attention to today, maybe either what happened yesterday, or something that's coming up. But if you're looking for a news podcast, I would say, in many ways, kind of like the Skim newsletter Mm -hmm, that we mm -hmm. have talked about um, many times on this show. The Skim is a little more, in fact, it's getting a little snarky for me, honestly, as somebody who really likes news. It's a fun thing to read. This is a much more serious take, but it is going to do kind of what the Skim does and give you a little bit more than just the headlines about a story so that you're going to feel like you're really becoming an informed person and not just, oh, I just know the basic facts. But... If you are looking for something a little bit more like the basic facts, the second one that I would recommend, it's not my awesome of the week because I'm going to say the daily has my heart, but (laughs) is um, NPR's Up First. Oh, yes. Uh Okay. So this is another news podcast. Same sort of thing. It's about 20 minutes every day. It is really like a quick summation of their morning news show. Okay. So... Um, David Green, Steve Inskeep, who you might know from other things that they do on NPR. It goes up at 6 a.m. Eastern. It's a quick, they do do a little bit of a deep dive into some stories, but it's a quick, here's what happened yesterday. Here's what's happening today. It's going to get you started. So again, up first from NPR, but my awesome of the week would have to be the Daily from the New York Times. Either of those are what we've been looking for, awesomes, as far as looking for a daily news podcast. I like that a lot. Okay, well, we are totally on the same wavelength this week, Kelly, because I also have a podcast recommendation, Mm -hmm. and it's also based in New York. Okay. (laughs) So I wanted to tell you all about a new podcast from WNYC Studios called Nancy. I don't know if you have heard about it. I just heard about it last week on Pop Culture Happy Hour. Linda Holmes recommended in what in her uh, what was making her happy that week segment. And Linda Holmes, I adore her and I trust her taste in all things pop culture. She's never steered me wrong. So I checked it out over the weekend, and I am here to say it's fantastic. So. At WNYC Studios, if you are unfamiliar, they are the people that have brought us fantastic podcasts like Radiolab, Death, Sex, and Money, Uh, Here's the Thing with Alec Baldwin. They have tons of fantastic programming in their podcast stable. So this is a new one from them. It is hosted by Kathy Tu and Tobin Lowe. They are best friends who are also part of the LBGTQ community. And so Nancy is a wonderful, at times lighthearted, at times really more serious and thoughtful approach to life in the LGBTQ community. And what I really love about it is in the way that all great 
audio does, I think, it not only tells the stories of people in that community, but you can really, there's a, there's a universal application to a mm-hmm. lot of the stories that they're telling. So the very first episode, uh, Kathy and Tobin both are kind of telling their coming out stories, especially coming out to their parents. And Kathy relays how her mother, who is Chinese and has there's a little bit of a language barrier there that she basically has had to kind of come out over and over with her mom and it's like been oh. a stressful but you know like ongoing conversation and so there's you know this thing about you know feeling misunderstood by your parents literally but also feeling misunderstood sort of in a more metaphorical way the gaps in understanding that we have with our parents how our relationship with our parents can be really complicated very loving but very complex as well so that one was fantastic there's another episode called elephant in the room that does some reporting on gay republicans and so i thought that one was really fascinating yes there is some very specific examination of the struggle and again complicated nature of being both gay and a republican and what that looks like in the Mm -hmm. political landscape today but I thought they did a really good job, too, of you kind of start thinking about how, like, all of us, in some sense, have to compromise some of our ideals and some of the things that we believe and hold dear when it comes to politics in this country. Oh, yeah, for sure. And so, yeah, it kind of looks at what compromise looks like, what what people feel like they could compromise and what cannot be compromised as they're kind of lining up their lives with their political affiliations. So, again really fantastic and that's that's just a couple of them there's um i think five or six episodes out now so if you wanted to get in early on a new podcast now is the time to do it you know obviously i'm a straight cisgender person so some of the stories i wouldn't pretend that i can completely identify and relate to those very specific struggles that would be very tone deaf of me to (laughs) try to assert and i don't think that's the case at all but the stories that they are telling the reporting they're doing It's helping me learn. And in a lot of ways, just because, again, they they really dig up some stories and some themes that are just so universal in their application. Mm -hmm. You kind of walk away with that feeling of feeling not so alone about some stuff, which I think is something that our medium does really well. It can do really well. So, yeah, it's our shared humanity, right? And when we have that intimate voice in our ears. I absolutely agree. I think that audio is like the new video. Mm. I actually saw some things this week and they were talking about podcasts and the growing medium and the fabulous things, really innovative things that are being done here. And that's one of the real strengths that we're finding is not only does it allow for people, especially right now, as we're still in the upswing of it, to experiment, but that you know, intimate um, voice in the ear sort of component, it's, it's really interesting. And I think it does bind us together in some sort of a way. Yes. Yeah, definitely. Okay, Kelly, I think today's episode is going to be so fun. Mm. Also, maybe a little awkward at times. (laughs) Yep. That's where we are. And it's okay. It's okay. We're going to lean into that. Yes. So we are definitely tackling a topic that makes people a little bit squirmy. And again, it's going to be a very candid discussion about this. But I think it is so important that we all know a little bit more about how to talk to kids about their bodies, about their development, about sex. And so we have asked a member of the awesome community who is a licensed clinical social worker and an ordained minister to come and talk to us. So Leanne Gardner has a small private therapy practice in Charleston, South Carolina. 
She uh, teaches social work to master's level students. She also facilitates these seminars that she's put together that are called SAFE seminars. And SAFE stands for Sexual Awareness and Family Empowerment. And she teaches these in churches around the United States and community groups as well. Now, Leanne's background is in abuse and neglect. And that experience, as you can imagine, has greatly influenced her approach to the prevention work that she does. Leanne's specialty is helping parents navigate 21st century issues with their children. Kelly, you and I know those so well. She has special, she places special attention on sexual development, using intuition as a protective factor, and empowering families to bolster their own community of trust, which we're going to talk about with Leanne here in a minute. And Kelly, we both have kids that are aged preschool on up to teenage years. So like this is real life for us. But as Leanne talks about in her interview, this is not just for parents. If you have kids in your life at all, whether they are, you know, grandchildren, nieces, nephews, uh, maybe a goddaughter, godson, anybody in your life who is in this learning and development stage of life, the information we're going to share that Leanne's going to share with you today, it's for all of us. So, all right, well, this is this is going to be a good one, and I hope that we all walk away with having learned something that we didn't know about talking to our kids about their bodies and about sex. So let's go to our interview with Leanne. Hi, Leanne. How are you? I'm good. How are you all doing? Well, we're maybe a little bit nervous <laughs> considering <laughs> considering the topic at hand, but I think we're doing well, and I know that we both cannot wait to hear the wisdom that you have to share with us today. I think it is going to be so helpful for so many of our listeners, whether or not they're parents. It's surely going to be more helpful than the one-time conversation that I had with my mother as we tried to broach this together. We had one talk. It was the talk. She covered, in one sitting, she covered everything from getting your period to intercourse. And then she handed me a book with cartoon illustrations and was like, okay, read this. And let me know if you have any questions. <laughs> and, we, and I was like, I don't know, probably 11 or 12 at the time. We never spoke of sex again until after I got home from my honeymoon <laughs> when I was 21 years old. And she asked me very awkwardly if I'd been getting a lot of yeast infections because she had a lot of those when she was a newlywed. <laughs> and that's literally the only time I've really talked to my mother about anything in this realm. <laughs> It's so cringeworthy. And Megan, I have to say, mine was almost exactly the same. I was around 11 or 12. My mom had even said, we're going to have a talk tonight. I remember this distinct memory of riding the little circle on my bike in front of our house and being like, this is it. This is the moment before everything changes. And it was exactly what you said. You know, one talk, menstruation, body changes to intercourse, Here's a book. Let me know if you have questions, which, of course, you're never going to come back with that sort never. of thing. Like, no, I will never, ever have a question <laughs> for you. And they're like, good. Yes. But it's better than Corey's parents. I have to tell you, this is so funny. It's just a huge joke in our family. His parents gave him a book on mating gerbils. <laughs> Wait. That mating? was his introduction to, to intercourse. <laughs> mating gerbils. Like, this is. Like gerbils, this is how a gerbil family has a new baby. Oh my gosh. And they never spoke of it. They handed him the book and they were like, here's what you need to know. So you might imagine human anatomy, a little different than what they may have said about gerbils. I think it was more like egg sperm. Oh my gosh. New baby, the end. So 
Oh my word. Like in the olden days, that was, I mean, it's so funny now, Yes. but that yeah. was kind of the way it was handled. And so Leanne, we're so glad you're here to help us take it up a notch That's right. out of the gerbil world, out of the one, the talk world. That's right. Yeah. I know you feel really strongly. It's more than one conversation. It's certainly not about mating gerbils. <laughs> So, hey, let's just start right there, Leanne, because I know this is this is something that this is the kind of information you're so used to talking to grownups about um, how we can have these conversations and that it is definitely more than just the talk. Right. And that those stories that you guys just told me are just sort of par for the course of what I hear. If I talk to 100 parents, I will have two or three people who raise their hand and say, my parents did it really well. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And it's not because parents didn't mean to do well or they were, you know, they just did the best they could. And depending on the generation and the time, they sort of avoided it. And now we're at this point in history where we cannot avoid it because our kids are being educated, not just by the internet, which my kids are not on yet because they're little, but billboards. I mean, this is how this this whole program I ran came into existence as I was driving down our interstate and I saw an Abercrombie and Fitch billboard and my two-year-old was in the back and I thought, oh my goodness, what am I going to say Mm -hmm. about what our family believes about how women may be portrayed in certain, Mm -hmm. in certain billboards or magazines or stores. And my next thought was I have to have a strategy. And then my next thought was, oh, I am the strategy. (laughs) (laughs) So true. And at the same time, it was, oh my gosh, I'm the strategy. And oh, yay, I'm the strategy. So it's this like really ambivalent feeling of like you have a lot of power, but but you don't want to mess up because you have that much power. Mm. And I want to do it right. And I want to be perfect. And all these things we try to do as parents that are not possible. So I tell my, my caregivers, and, and this is grandparents, this is people who love kids, not just parents. I tell them at the beginning of every seminar, the goal is not to be perfect. So like, let's take that off the table. The goal is not to be comfortable. So let's take that off the table. The goal is to have courage and to be authentic and to be present. Mm, that's so so good. kids, kids want us to engage and, and to kind of beat us to the punch a little bit about what they're wondering. And that takes us like being the expert on them, which is kind of what we are, especially when they're little before they start, you know, finding their friends, mm-hmm. um, as their main source of information, but to say like, okay, this kid in my, in my group of children is pretty shy. So I'm going to have to do some extra work with them and bring it up more intentionally than I would this kid who's chatty Kathy yes. asking me all kinds of questions. Um, so I think, uh, taking the perfection piece off the table and like that we have to know everything and then putting the relationship in perspective that this sexuality education is an outshoot of our already existing relationship with our kids. And it's 0.02% of what we talk about. Sure. We talk about all other kinds of things all during the day and weeks and months and years. And that being approachable in our relationship as a whole is what we want for this conversation so that we become kind of their fact checkers, especially as they get older. Like I'm going to go to school and I hear this, but I'm going to come back to mom Kelly because mom Kelly has set the stage that she is willing to go to the hard places Mm -hmm. and be squirmy for me. 
and, and that's the other word, the phrase I use is living into the squirm. Oh, I love so, that. That's so great. Like, I love it. The, the moment I feel, uh, I get the question and I start going, <gasps> you think to yourself, okay, I got to do it. I got to do it. And I'm going to act like it's the, the most normal question in the whole world. And because that is what keeps them coming back for more is that approachable attitude and the basic foundation of your relationship that you already have. Yes. Yeah. Kelly and I are just nodding our heads because Kelly and I have kids, you know, age range from like preschool, early elementary up to teen and preteen. And I think, yes, I have actually had to practice that sort of poker face because again, my oldest daughter's in sixth grade, Kelly's older kids are older than that. And they do come with questions and you just kind of have to be able to like impartially be like, all right, we're doing this and just right. not at, not make, make it a big till you deal. make it. Yeah, exactly. Right. Fake it till you make it. Yeah. And I, I feel like that's what I've heard from my mentor moms over and over is that you've got to get that poker face. You've got to be non phased mm-hmm. because that's going to build that trust and they're going to keep coming to you with questions. And so even for me to hear some of the questions that other parents have faced has been a good, like, oh, oh, you know, so I can kind of get my reaction out with my friends. So if you have little kids listening, maybe make sure they're not right now. But, you know, I had one friend whose son said, mom, what's a blow job? Mm-hmm. Yes, that's we've had that conversation the, too. That's actually the, the example that I use because that's like the fourth grade question, but mm-hmm. I didn't know if I could use it on this show. So I didn't say it's it. Fine. <laughs> it's fine. Yeah. We, we need to, ha- we need to be able to be frank with each other so that we can have right. these conversations with our kids. So it's totally exactly. Fine. So if you're listening right now and I just said that and you're like, oh, my goodness. I mean, that was my reaction, too. But you need to have that reaction outside of your kids, you know, so that way when they ask you, you're like, oh, yes, let me tell you, I can I can answer this question in a way where I'm not freaking out. Now, we always do. There's times, as you said, we have to lean into the squirm. They will catch us off guard. They will come up with something that we aren't prepared for. But the more we can be prepared, Leanne, that's why you're here, the better it's going to go for us. And I will say, like, as a little caveat to that, I always give caregivers permission when they get sort of blindsided by a question. So, mm-hmm. like, what's a blowjob? And it's a third grader asking. Mm-hmm. Or what does it mean, you know, like my son just asked me about circumcision mm-hmm. the other day. Mm-hmm. And sure. what, because he has a cousin who looks different than him. And so he was asking me these questions. And so if it's a big deal question that really stumps you, I always say, like, you can say, you know what? That is such a good question that I need some time to think about it. Yes. Because I want to make sure I give you the best answer. And and my job is to give you facts and to keep you safe. My job's not to be cool like your friends. Mm-hmm. That's your friend's job. Mm-hmm. And so if you have a parenting partner to even say, like, I may need to talk to your dad. I, I kind of want to get your dad's thoughts on that. And I will come back and talk to you. So I said that one day in a seminar and this mom said, oh, yeah, I've done that. I said, you went back, right? She said, oh, no, I didn't go back. I'm like, (laughs) (laughs) you can't do that. Wait, that's not how it works, though. (laughs) Yeah, so that breaks the trust. So, like, you you say, you give, you get permission to take a second or a day, but then you go back and say, okay, we talked about it, and here's what we want you to know about that. Yes. So I think that's that's part of being authentic and human and knowing that sometimes you may really need to think about the answer. That is so, so true. I think kind of it's a myth that we start to think – I have to have the perfect answer ready at all times. 
So I love that. Just give yourself permission to take a beat because sometimes you need to take a beat and just be like, okay, how do I formulate here? And it really is great modeling for them. It really is. Like it models, everything we do is modeling. So it models to these kids like, oh, I don't have to, I don't have to be on the spot. I can actually ruminate and and gather my thoughts and come back. So, so true. I think that's good. So true. Well, okay. If a myth might be that we have to have the perfect answer ready at all times. I know Leanne, I'm sure that in your line of work, you have heard all kinds of other myths about how we approach these conversations. So do, do any others come to mind? Oh goodness. Yes. Okay. So the biggest one, and this happened just last month when I went to a local school And the principal is the one who had been talking to me to ask me to come talk to the PTA. And I show up and she has from teenager all the way to, I think, probably eight years, eight year old kids of her own. And she said, I don't really need to be here because we've already talked about this. Hmm. And I was like, oh, you're exactly the the one who needs to be here. (laughs) So, So the myth is that it's a one and done. The talk. I mean, that's the the myth that keeps get perpetuated because of the talk. And if there's any educators listening, um, and you guys, Megan, you're an you're an educator. As a teacher, Kelly, you're an educator. Yeah. So this the, the word scaffolding. So we're building on learning constantly. And so mm-hmm. sex educators like to talk about scaffolding the talks. Mm-hmm. So, for example, the Dutch is the Dutch do it really well. The Dutch probably in the world do sexuality education the best. That's and there's a really cool. Yeah, yeah, it is, and there's a cool wrap and wrap up story. I'll tell you about that as we go, but they teach four-year-old as early as four. They don't teach intercourse at four, but they teach assertiveness and talking about, you know, being able to put your hand up and say, no, mm-hmm. I don't want you to touch me. So they start that early. We should, we also start, honestly, we start when we hold a newborn baby and we show them that to be touched is a good experience. And mm. we, model intimacy and being able to diaper them and let them explore their bodies and not shame them for exploring their bodies. So sexuality education starts in the womb. Mm. We know that boys have erections in the womb. So we're sexual beings from the time we are in the womb. So we scaffold our sexuality education based on their development, based on their language development, but also their sexual development. And then as they age, it's it is not so dramatic because we have had these conversations over and over and over again. So one of the things I love is talking about um, knowledge is the edge of understanding. Mm. So when a child is six, we might say a little more than we think they'll understand. Okay. Because then they sort of pick up on the language so that when they are ready to go there, they are like, oh, yeah, we've talked about that or I've heard about that before. And what we know about kids, which is so amazing, is they take in the information they need. And if you're saying too much, they start staring off into space and they they just assimilate what they need and they get rid of the rest. Mm-hmm. So so we know that they are going to give us cues when, for example, my son said to me when he was four, um, where did I come from? Mm-hmm. And I said, well, mom has egg cell and dad has a sperm cell and they come together. He's like, whoa, 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 whoa. I mean, what hospital was I born in? <laughs> right. Yeah. Which is another tip. Find out what they need to know. Yes. And before you start doing your you know, pontificating of all these things so you practice true. in private. Yes. Um, and so the scaffolding thing is huge. That, that is not a, a talk. And I think if we do not change that philosophy, we are going to suffer mm-hmm. because the way that technology is, you know, one click away 
pornography becomes sex education, we are going to really be sorry that we did not have these squirmy conversations along the way. This is an area where I really wish I had done a better job. So my older kids are 15 and 13, and then I've got younger ones in elementary. And when my older kids were young, again, because of the way I had been raised, even though my thinking was starting to change, you know, if they asked questions, I was really like, oh, we don't need to go there yet. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, when my sister had a baby and my daughter was five and she asked, like, how does the baby get out? I panicked. You know, like I was like, I don't uh, there's a hole, uh, the babies. And I thought that that would be so traumatic to her because we hadn't even discussed the different holes, you know, and right. um, that I was like, well, there's a hole that women have the babies come out of. And I said, but sometimes, sometimes the babies just can cut a little hole and lift the baby out. And she was like, what? They cut the mother's tummy. And I was like, oh, no. So like then, you know, for a week, she's like, I'm just never having children. I just don't want them to cut my tummy. And I was thinking that she'd be more, you know, trauma the idea of pushing a baby out of a hole in her body that we had not even <laughs> right. turned. You know, so <laughs> I look back and I think, oh my word, I was way too uptight, way too concerned. And I, I think maybe some of the awesomeness who are listening are going to think this. We don't want to, quote unquote, take away their innocence. Mm, I've heard that right? so many so times. So we don't yes. want to like, right, we don't want to introduce something that maybe they're not thinking about. And so we're afraid to go there. Because we think, well, maybe this is just like one of those one-off questions and we can slip it under the rug and it doesn't need to be addressed right now. What would you say to that, Leanna? Okay, so here's my first thing about that. We have to take off our adult sex classes. Okay, yes. Okay, because we are thinking when a child, for example, touches, say it's a boy and he touches his penis, we're thinking, he's masturbating. Mm. Not masturbating. He's touching his penis because it feels good. Right. Right? Right. And so... We have to take that off. We have to think about these are their bodies. Um, If you're a person of faith, and I speak a lot in churches, so I talk about bodies being gifts from God, Mm -hmm. and they are made for a purpose, and sex is for making babies, but usually it's for pleasure, Mm -hmm. and we feel uncomfortable with that too. Um, And so being able to say, like, look, this is just part of who you are as a whole person. You're a social person. You're a spiritual person, but you're a physical body that has parts that are special, but not shameful. Mm-hmm. Um, right. And that we can sort of talk to that as a, in a matter of fact. So like one of the things I do is talk about how it's really important to use appropriate terms, mm-hmm. proper terms. Mm-hmm. It's appropriate to use proper terms because it's just what they're called, but it's also important because it's prevention. So mm-hmm. the studies show that if a kid says, this is my penis or this is my vulva, mm-hmm. then potential potential offenders are like, oh, assertive, right? right? Yes. Which is pretty amazing. You think it gives me chills every time I talk about it. Mm-hmm. So we have to uh, talk about those. Like we don't nickname our elbow. So why would we nickname our penis? Mm-hmm. You know, um, just talking about body parts as part of how we're made with functions. Um, this is where books, when you're talking about the, the pregnancy, it reminded me of this. For littles, books are so helpful because they give visuals. They say, like, actually, a woman does not carry a baby in her stomach. Mm-hmm, right. It is mm-hmm. a uterus. And for, mm-hmm. and for literal and for literal thinkers, the littles, they think, like, oh, how do you eat when you're pregnant? Just go right, right. to the baby's mouth. So Roby Harris is the big sex educator 
illustrator and she's not the illustrator actually she's the writer and she will she has a picture in one of her books of a woman sitting in a theater watching a movie eating popcorn the popcorn goes to her stomach and then the baby is in her uterus so um i'm sure my kid is the only five-year-old who says look there's a baby in her uterus but you know (laughs) I i have to practice what i preach so so i think the innocent thing is that we part of that is just our our projecting our adult stuff onto them Yes. Um, they think, I don't know about y'all's kids when they were preschoolers, but mine, he loves his body. He gets out of the tub and he's like, you know, oh, he's yeah. dancing around. Definitely. He's like, this penis thing is like the most amazing thing on my body. <laughs> right? There is absolutely <laughs> no shame. It is so beautiful. Yeah, I yes. love to watch it because he has not been, he hasn't, nobody has told him or he hasn't caught on that like there's something about my body that's supposed to be, mm-hmm. I'm supposed to be ashamed of. And I and imagine if I had girls, I would feel even more strongly about that mm-hmm. because I think they get those messages so much sooner. Yes. Yeah. Yes, definitely. Um, okay. So another one, if they don't ask about sex, they're not wondering. Oh, that is a myth for sure. Yes. So, okay. So here's usually what happens. I've never met a parent who said, I have two kids and they're very similar. Never. <laughs> That's so Never. true, right? right? Yes. <laughs> Never. Yes. I mean, all the time I hear he's like this and uh-huh. she's like this yes. for two boys and their opposites. So we decide and, and not, not consciously that we are going to approach how we parent the same exact way. Mm-hmm. If, yes. Say for example, we have two mm-hmm. kids. I discipline him this way. So I'm going to discipline him this way. And then you realize very quickly, like with me, I thought we were like the best parents after our first. And then we had our second. I was like, <laughs> oh, my gosh, it's so hard. <laughs> um, and so, so if you have a more reticent kid, you are going to have to make more of an effort mm. to uh, bring up the conversations and say, like, here's, you know, you're about to approach puberty. Let me tell you right now what puberty is going to be like. Even my five-year-old was asking something about shaving. And I'm like, that's when your body changes. And that happens when you're a little older. So we have to take initiative with those kids who are more shy. The other cool thing that happens is if the older kid is more talkative and the younger kid is the shy one, the older kid becomes the de facto sex educator. Oh, Mm -hmm. absolutely. Yes. So, So then you actually benefit from being an awesome sex educator to the oldest mm-hmm. because they because they are more approachable than you are. Kelly, you're nodding your head like this has actually happened. Well, it's actually <laughs> happened to my friend, the one who had her oldest son. She would drive all three of her boys home from school. And it was her oldest son who was the talker and her middle son who was not that much younger, but not ever talking about anything. And so she said she was so thankful for this exact thing to have somebody in the family. So he was the one who said, mom, what's a blowjob? Now, she did have a younger one in the car that she wasn't sure was quite ready for that. So she was sometimes able to say, let's talk about it when we got home. But she almost always tried to do it at a time when the more inward thinking, introspective child was there able to overhear so that yes. she didn't have to address him specifically. And I'm already seeing this and how much easier it is with younger kids because my oldest, who is a girl, you know, she has her period and she just doesn't care who knows. Like when I was a teen, oh, it was like a, oh my gosh. Oh, yes. you know, like you had, you know, code words, right, with your friends. And that was like it. You know, my aunt Flo has mm. come to visit. I'm sure none of the boys ever figured that out. <laughs> we were so <laughs> sneaky. But like she doesn't care. I think hopefully because we're creating more of an environment in our home of not shame or this isn't a big deal. Um, you know, she'll come home from school and say, 
oh, I had my period today. I need McDonald's. You know, and she's just very open about it. In so everybody. I, everybody's hearing it. Yes. Yeah. So awesome. they haven't specifically asked questions, but of course my 13 year old, he knows what's going on. And so to hear his sister say that, I'm thinking right there, that's got to, you know, open some doors, some space for me then to come in as the parent and say, do you know what, she, you know what she's talking about? Right. And like, yes. do you understand that? And that sort of a thing. So it just really having that older child or at least an, a child that's willing to be the verbal one is so helpful. Yes. Your, and he is, he is watching that you are not censoring her mm-hmm. in that conversation. Right. So then he's getting this double message. He's getting the actual content, which is menstruation. And then the other message he's getting, which is even almost more important is it's okay to talk about menstruation yes. in my house. Yes. Right. Which I think is, is so powerful. And especially for those boys, like that's something we have both girls and boys. But again, my friend who had only boys, she said she sat them all down Well, the two older ones at that time. And she got out tampons and pads and said, here's what they are. Here's what it does. Here's how this part moves into that part and why. Because she said, obviously, you don't need this information personally, but you are going to even in high school be around girls who are dealing with this. Mm -hmm. I want you to get it. So that if something falls out of their pocket and they're embarrassed, you can be like, I'm not, this is fine. Like, this is not a big deal to me. Since you don't have sisters to do this, what a great mom, right? To say, I'll do it. Here's the deal. I don't care if it makes you uncomfortable. This is a normal fact of life. And you need to have some empathy for the women in your life, for your, your, you know, girlfriends, whether they're girls and friends or girlfriends, whatever. I just, I thought that was so empowering for those boys and for the women that they will have in their lives the rest of their life. That's so great. I love that. Um, One other one I will say is in terms of myth is, and I don't really think anybody believes this. I just think it's hard for us to get into action is that they're not going to get the info from anybody else. So we know (laughs) that, like, come on, we know, you know, you, I think the three of us are in that generation where like, I actually remember sending my first email from my college computer uh-huh. lab. Yes, definitely. Yeah. From the college. Like, writing center. Yes. Uh-huh. yes. 1997. <laughs> you know, that whole thing. <laughs> and like my kids, your kids do not have, they have no recollection of true. like writing a letter, sending it in the mail, et cetera. So we have to have, we have to kind of, you know, they get a bad rap because we're like, they're always on their phones. They're always doing this. They're always doing this. This is all they've known. Mm -hmm. So we have to mitigate that by giving them that personal relationship to say, like, there's a lot of stuff on the internet. There's a lot of good stuff on the internet even, Mm -hmm. but there are agendas everywhere. Mm. There's agendas from friends. There's agendas from media. There's agendas from pornography, for example, my agenda is to love you and to keep you safe and to help hopefully create a contributing, empathetic, kind person, kind human. And so that is, that should be the motivator for us to say, okay, we got to be on top of it. And so we have to keep this conversation going. And the way I describe it is fat is a fact check. So my son goes to a friend's house, say he's 15 or younger and Something something comes up on a phone that is, for example, pornography. Mm-hmm. And he sees it and he thinks, oh, mom and dad talk to me about this. Mm-hmm. Right. So like there's some cognitive dissonance seeing it. And then there, and then he's like, oh, I have an alternate narrative 
in my head because we have had these conversations. Mm -hmm. So then he, he may not come back and talk to me, but he will have some internal dialogue about, I know a little bit about what that's about and what my family believes about it. Mm, And that gives him an alternate viewpoint to think about. Whereas a kid who goes over to a friend's house, no one has ever uttered a word about porn. And I bring up porn a lot because it's prevalent and it comes up constantly with the people I work with. Okay. Mm-hmm. Um, and so having those conversation points where they can say like, oh, yeah, I've already had a conversation with my mom or my dad or my other people in my mm-hmm. community of trust. Right. So I think it's just it's really important to have that. Can I ask a question about porn? Sure. So. One of the things that I've been thinking about is, like you said, this generation, our children, the internet is everything. Google is God, right? If I had had Google when I had questions, but I'd already had the talk with my parents, I would have so gone back to Google to ask questions and say, well, I don't know what this term means that I heard in school. Because I don't even know that my parents knew what some of those terms were. You know, like maybe they did. and I was not going to ask them. So... I'm wondering two things. How do we make sure that our kids, and we don't make sure, but try to say, you can come to me and really reinforce that, especially with those kids who don't talk. Is it something that maybe we say, hey, have you heard this term? Um, Because if they're not going to come back and say, I heard this at school, I don't know what it means. It's easier for me to Google it, Mm. right? But then what are the images that come up? And then kind of the second thing that goes along with that is what happens, we can say, here's the counter narrative for porn and for, you know, women and it's, you know, demeaning, whatever. Um, but I think for both girls and boys, you know, cause the percentage of girls who would say they're addicted to pornography today is very, very high where it used to be, the, well, this is a boy thing, you know, mm-hmm. um, when they start to respond to it, you know, sexually. And so they're like, on one hand, they know what we're saying. On the other, they're like, I'm very intrigued. Mm, right. Yeah. That's a great question. Okay, so the answer to the first question leads me to one of my favorite things that I talk about, and that is that we cannot be everything to our kids, okay? And there's a couple reasons why. One, because we can't be everything to our kids. (laughs) Second, because who wants to ask their mother what a blowjob is? Right, right. Right? Yeah. Like, ooh. So we have the incest taboo that's built in that we don't have sex with our kids and we don't want to know about our parents having sex. Like, that is in, inherent in every culture that has built this divide where we're now over here on the pendulum where we don't talk about it at all. So we need to kind of come back to the middle. Um, when I worked, my background's in abuse and neglect. And when I worked in that setting, when I interviewed almost a thousand kids and X amount disclosed sexual abuse, almost every single one of them who disclosed sexual abuse did not tell their mothers Mm. And people will guess in my seminars because they're afraid to get in trouble or they don't want to disappoint her or whatever. The reason is because moms are too high stakes. Mm, If I tell you, if I'm your child, Megan, and I tell you pretty much the worst news of your life, Mm -hmm. I know intuitively, not, not, not in, in, in a very conscious level at all, but I know intuitively I tell mom it will break her heart and she will cry and I'm going to destroy her. 
If I tell dad, he may also act, act the same way, but he also may kill someone or vice right. versa. I've had moms who say, no, no, I would actually kill. <laughs> right. Uh, so kids have this wicked sense of intuition mm. about telling. So right. who do they tell? They tell aunts yes. and they tell best friends, parents, best friends, okay. mothers. Interesting. Okay. So super interesting. This is so fascinating. But, but what it means practically in my practice and how I help people with their kids is I say to them, you have to give your kids other people to talk to. Yes, yes. So we call it, I have a little handout coloring sheet that I get, it's the community of trust, and there's bubbles around a kid. Mm -hmm. And you say to your kids, and this is teenagers too, although it has a little nuance to teenagers, who in our circle do you really feel like you could talk to about like hard things, like Mm -hmm. about, you know, body changes or about pornography or about some weird term you heard at school that is just a little too weird to ask me. Mm-hmm. Well, Aunt Betty, I could talk to so-and-so at church. I could talk to so-and-so neighbor. Okay, so we are. I am going to give you explicit permission. That's really important. Yes. Explicit permission that you can talk to these people because I trust them, because I feel like they may not say the exact same thing that I would, but they have our same values. Mm-hmm. Um and, and then I may talk to Aunt Betty and say, like, look, we may need to think about, like, when do you need to tell me? If, it, if, it's, a, if it's a safety issue, and this becomes more relevant with teenagers, mm-hmm. but uh, we need to kind of work out what we're, what the parameters are. And, of course, make sure Aunt Betty's okay being asked about blowjobs. Yes. So, <laughs> so that seems random to answer your question, Kelly, but mm-hmm. my, my point is, like, when your kids get exposed to things and they want to, for example, go to Google and find out, I, I don't think that's all bad, but we need to give them a human experience enfolded yeah. in, 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 in a relationship mm-hmm. of someone who cares about them to as another option besides Google. So it won't always be you. And it shouldn't, I don't really think it should always be mm-hmm. you. I think we're teaching them that we have other people that care for us. And if we like kind of believe in this community model that, um, there are other people that are gifted in other ways than mom is, and I want you to be able to have access to them. And so giving them permission, because kids, especially little ones, intuitively feel like they are being disloyal if they go outside of the system. Oh, yes. So yeah. that, that's a protective factor for us, is mm-hmm. to help choose those people who can be our support team. Mm-hmm. Yes. They really are. Like, they're on our team. And, you know, I if I've learned anything from doing the seminar is that is that I am not just responsible for my own kids mm-hmm. I'm responsible right. for my best friend's kid and my neighbor's kid. And I want to be that person that they feel like she is a alternative to mom who will like break down and cry. If I asked her a hard question or like my mom, when I said, I asked about something about birth control. She's like, are you having sex? Mm, right. Gosh, I just asked you a question. Like, so right. then I'm like, I'm asking you anything else, lady, you know, so, right. so it just doesn't have all the, all the complications and yeah, all the baggage. Yeah. Right. All the baggage. So I think that's, I think that's really important. Um, so at least this is interesting about porn. I started doing this and I was doing, it's sort of focused on birth to eighth grade because when you do teenagers, you have to get into STIs and I, I'm like, it's a whole nother beast. Mm-hmm. So I decided, I mean, and this is, I'm pretty I don't think of myself as very naive, but I started developing it and I was like, oh, I don't need to do porn because it's just little baby eighth graders, zero to eighth graders. Every children's minister that I contact or that contacted me said, do you have a module on porn? Right. Because we have 
we have eight-year-olds who are accidental, and a lot mm-hmm. of it's accidental. Yes, mm-hmm. yes. They're getting exposed on YouTube, et cetera. And you may, it depends on what you call porn and how soft porn to hardcore porn, et cetera. But their parents really need to know how to handle it. So I have a whole module on porn. And one of the things I say about that is you have to normalize the reaction and the curiosity because there is something very inherently fascinating Mm-hmm. And you sort of know in your gut it's 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 a little bit taboo, and so you're drawn to it. And so to say to a kid, it is okay to be curious. Yes. But let's talk about the context again. This is the faith perspective, and not everybody has this. What did God intend mm. physical intimacy to be? Mm-hmm. Um, and you know, like a lot of other things in the world, it's gone bad. And um, this is, everybody has different opinions about, porn. Oh, sure. you know, like, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, which is a whole nother thing. But when, we, when you're talking about women being subjugated and violent porn, where 95% of the time women are being harmed, I mean, that's the kind of stuff I'm talking about where sure. it's multiple people, you know, whips and all that stuff. It's, yeah. you know, so, and also the boys who were in, who were in our program for illicit sexual behaviors would say to us, I thought women wanted to be raped mm-hmm. because that's what I saw. Before. Right. And that was their sex education. I mean, they had no, nobody was talking to them about like responsibility and that it's, you know, in this contextual relationship where you actually like wash clothes and cook dinner and raise kids and, you know, a little blip of the time, if you're lucky, you have sex. I mean, so like, it's just completely out of context. And that's what, that's where porn has to have some additional narrative around. Like this is not real. And, you know, people aren't hanging from ceiling fans, usually. Um, And you can't expect partners to do these things that you're seeing. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think, you know, having those conversations and then then seeing porn makes it a different experience because you're like, oh, yeah, this isn't real. This is, these are fake people. And, you know, so I think to answer your question is, is normalizing those feelings of arousal because, you know, they get aroused. I mean, that's part of being a sexual being. But then putting that into context in your family's beliefs. And my big thing about that is every family has a narrative. Uh, you can have the same theology, but still be on a big spectrum of that. Sure. And so my job is to empower people not to, I'm not going to tell you what to believe. I'm just going to tell you, you have to tell your kids what you believe. Uh, that's so good. Right. That's oh, so that's good, really good, Leanne. I love that. I love that. Well, I would love to know before we um, end our time with you, if there's other questions, like that was a great one from Kelly. I mean, are there other sort of frequently asked questions that you get that you kind of want to touch on? Yeah, before we wrap up today. So here's here's an interesting one. Parents will say, okay, this is all great, but I have a very um, talkative and rambunctious eight-year-old who likes to go to school and tell his friends everything we talk about. Yes, uh-huh. <laughs> I can relate. <laughs> so I'm happy talking about blowjob, but I don't really want my eight-year-old going to school and being like the classroom sex educator. Right. <laughs> um, and so That's I, so one of the things, yeah, so we talk about that a lot and, and it comes up almost every seminar and I say, Look, you know, you put it in context. This is a family conversation. So I did that about the circumcision conversation we had recently with my son. It's like every family has a different opinion on this issue. And we respect 
you know, everybody's opinions, but this is a conversation that we just have in our family. And the fine line with that is you don't want to shame the conversation. Sure, right? Exactly. Exactly. Like, it's just, mm-hmm. it's like private versus, you know, shameful. So, yes. um, and then some, some parents would be like, okay, yeah, but that still won't work. Like they're still going to go to school. Right. So here's what I think about that. I think if you have a child who is giving correct information mm-hmm. to their classmates after you have said imploringly, this is our family's conversation. And for some reason or another, they can't stand it and they have to go educate. Then they're getting good information. Yes. I mean, I, I just, I, I would never say to somebody, you should not sex educate for fear of your child being mouthy at school. Okay, that's good. That's good. I have one of those. But that's really liberating to hear because I have worried about, you know, what is the end result mm-hmm. of this or what's the consequence? What's the bigger consequence going to be? But that's very but reassuring. Like you have a parent who says, your child came to school using the word vulva. And you're like, <laughs> Okay, so? right. Um, the other comparison people make sometimes is Santa Claus thing. Like, yes, right. you know, you don't go and talk about how Santa Claus isn't real or Santa, you know, whatever, if other people or you found out that Santa Claus isn't real, and then you go tell people. So, um, I mean, that's a loose comparison. I think, again, that's also scaffolding, because as they hear it younger, look, there are certain things in our family that uh, we just want to keep in our family because other families believe different things, and we're being respectful of that. Yes, definitely. Uh, Not because it's shameful to talk about, but because we're respecting other people. Right. Sure, sure. That makes a lot of sense. So... Um, okay. So a huge topic that is very taboo that parents bring up often is sex play versus problematic sexual behaviors. Okay. So when is sex play developmentally appropriate? And then like, when should you worry? So a lot of parents will come to me and say like, my kid, you know, showed the neighbor boy her, took off her panties and showed him her vulva. Is there something wrong with her? Right. And you know, she's, like she loves her vulva and (laughs) she she thinks it's really cool and she may want to see his penis and so like that's very normal developmental sex play sex play is spontaneous it's fun they giggle the big thing about sex play is it can be redirected very easily they're like oh i forgot we were supposed to have our clothes off and then they kind of come back in line when it becomes problematic is if anybody's coerced if there's Mm -hmm. a big developmental or age gap if anyone gets hurt and if it cannot be redirected. Okay. So it becomes more of a compulsion and there's a lot of research on that that I share, but, but that is a question that everyone's mm-hmm. like, can I write my question down and send it to you? Cause they're very, it's very embarrassing sure. and it causes a lot of problems because I've never met a parent who said, Oh, it's my kid that initiated it. Right. I mean, parents are always going to blame the other child. And, and I bet the listeners, like half of them probably have had a situation where there was some kind of sex play involved and it's, it's worrisome because of our adult sex classes Mm, that we project on them. All the sexologists and sex educators would say that is a very normal part of development. Not that it should be redirected, but that it is part of us really kind of delighting Mm -hmm. in our bodies and being curious about other bodies. Yes. Right. It's healthy. With people we trust. With people we trust, that's the other the other issue. If you see kids coming together, engaging in sex play, like right after they met, which is not typical because there has to be some sort of like, it's usually between siblings or cousins. Mm-hmm. Um, 
relationship is already established. Okay, so I have one question that maybe as we wrap up, this is good for everybody who's listening. As we possibly reframe how we're going to sex educate our kids from how we were sex educated um, when we were growing up, could you give us some rough ideas of what is appropriate, what we should be anticipating at different ages? Because one of the things that I remember being kind of revolutionary to me, because like we said, Megan and I, our parents talked about body changing, menstruation and intercourse all at once because it was all sexual to them. You know, like how you talk about trying to take off our adult sex glasses to them. It was all the same. And I know that one of the things, a book that has been referenced in the Hangout and everywhere that I go, it's so good, is the American Girl book, The Care and Keeping of You, for girls who are getting ready to enter puberty, right? And it doesn't mention sex at all. It doesn't mention intercourse, right? It just says, here's your body. It's so cool. You're going to have changes that are coming so that as you grow up, you're going to be able to have babies. But they don't even get into intercourse. Right. Mm -hmm. It's such a good one. So when I I realized that, I was like, oh, I I don't have to try to, you know, even take baby steps into everything at once. So anyway, that all to say, Leanne, what would you say? So if you have, you know, zero to five, five to 10, 10 to 15 ish, like what would be the things that we should be thinking about? Maybe even making sure that we're prepped for, or that we can broach with them. Oh man, that's a big question. Okay. So zero to five, your body's good. People respond to you. We touch you lovingly as you get upward well, even, even early, even early that you are the boss of your body oh, that's to some so good. extent, yes. you know, like I said the other day in my seminar, you know, I was talking about giving them choices and, and letting them say, no, they don't want to hug people. And you see all those, those articles circular circulating around Facebook. That is the beginning of consent. Yes. So when my five-year-old is all over the two-year-old and the two-year-old starts whining, mm-hmm. I say, stop. He is saying no. Yes. When he says no, you stop. Same thing on the trampoline. We jump on the trampoline. The rule is if anybody stops having fun, we stop. And then I model for them. Tickle, tickle, tickle. You know how tickles like fun, 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 not fun. Yes. Like Mm -hmm. a very fine line. Mm -hmm. So tickle, tickle, tickle. Mom, stop. Mom stops. Did you see what I just did? What did I do when you said stop? I stopped. So zero to five begins consent, which is my other big soapbox issue. And then when they get older, you know, it becomes more sophisticated as we talk about bodies and body empowerment, which is part of the wraparound sex education that I am talking about. We uh, normalize bodies early on, you know, with touching and and talking about body parts in a non-embarrassing way. And we call them what they are. That's also huge. Um, You know, five to 10, especially when you think about latency age kids, like as they get eight, nine, 10, we're anticipating puberty. We're not having the puberty talk when we first see the hair under the arm. We're saying, this is what is going to happen to you. Mm-hmm. And this is what happens to every human being on the planet Earth. And we use books like the American mm-hmm. Girl Dolls book, and we use other books, and we reach out to our safety, um, our community of trust, and we say, look, Uncle John you know, developed really late or really early, because you always have to be concerned about those mm-hmm. those kids on the edge of the bell curve. Mm-hmm. He would love to talk to you about that if you have any concerns. Um, another huge thing is rites of passage. So we do a terrible job in this country of celebrating the first menstruation, and we do an even more terrible job of acknowledging boys, because mm-hmm. what do we do? Have a wet dream party? I've never heard of a wet dream party. <laughs> 
I have not either. (laughs) No. So we say to boys, look, there may be a time when you wake up and there's stuff in your sheets. Here's what you do. You throw them in the the washing machine because God Mm -hmm. knows we do not want your sheets sitting there for days (laughs) or months because you were afraid to tell me. And I had a friend say, well, we had the first shave. We had a first shave Oh, that's party. good. Yeah. Yeah. So it gives guys really don't get the demarcation that yeah. that girls do. And I think it's so important to normalize. This is a big deal. You are physically, you are moving into adulthood. And every other culture in our world does that so well. Yes. So I think puberty is a big thing um, I would touch on for that, especially that age group. And then as, as they get to be teenagers, you have to really hone in on the consent talks, the alcohol, the drugs, um, being able to say, here's what happens when you get in trouble. Um, you can text me this thing and I know I need to come get you or you're coming home or we're you know, having some um, well thought out scenarios so that they know what to do if yes. they need to get out of a place. Right. Mm-hmm. Uh, I've even had parents say they they'll have a word that you can text or you can mm-hmm. call mm-hmm. that some, you know, random, you know, like the zipper on my jacket's not working, mm-hmm. something yeah. like that. That's the code. Right. And the parents say, if you employ this emergency escape route, it also means I will ask no questions. Yes. yes. Like so that the kids are like, if I say this, they're going to be like, what's going on once I get in the car? And it's like, nope. If you want to talk to me, great. But I will come and pick you up. No questions asked. Because we want our kids to feel safe enough to be able to get out of a situation. I thought that was so good. So good. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, I end with one story. So I have read a lot about Danish wraparound sex education. It starts in kindergarten and they talk about power and control issues very early. They talk about um, assertiveness and um, intuition, which I also think is really important to understand how to read your gut, kind of the sixth sense that gets ignored often in our culture. They have one of the lowest teen pregnancy rates in the world. It's five times lower than ours. Um, and so people who say like, oh, that's too early and talking about sex makes kids want to have sex. It's just, it's just not true. It's not true. Um, right. It's not true. It, it's broader because it doesn't just include intercourse. It includes how to communicate, how to be assertive, how to say no, how to have body empowerment. So all that I, I, I learned about, I think it's really cool. Then the Brock Turner case happens. Uh, January 18th of 2015, where he raped an unconscious woman mm-hmm. by a dumpster. And here come two graduate students on their bikes and they see him moving and they see her not moving. So they go and confront him. He runs away. They chase him down and sit on him until the mm-hmm. police come. That's right. Mm-hmm. Yes. Okay. So police come, they interview them and I show their pictures because I think everybody should see their faces. Um, they cannot answer questions because they are sobbing. Oh, mm-hmm. yeah. They are so moved by the trauma they saw. Mm. Um, and without question intervene, they're Danish. Wow. That's really telling. That's really You're remarkable. Danish. Yes. So I say to my husband one night, as this all is coming together, do you think American boys mm. would have done that? And he's like, oh, you're reading too much into it. I'm sure they would have. And I'm like, you know, I mean, I just think about if you're four and you're hearing about consent and power and, you know, all these broader topics, and that is in your DNA because mm-hmm. yeah. it's cultural, 
then you see this happen and you don't skip a beat and you not only intervene, but you have empathy. You are, yeah. you are moved by the violence that happened. So when the victim wrote her victim impact statement, she says at the end, I drew a picture of two bikes and I put them over my bed to remember there are still heroes in the world that will intervene and protect people. And as the mother of two boys, I, I have this hashtag I use a lot, boys on the bikes. Like, how can I create oh, that's so boys yeah. who will intervene? So I gave all my mom friends a Christmas ornament this year of little tiny red bicycles just to kind of remember, like, this is what we're doing. This is about communication and loving them. But it's also about trying to help usher, like, kind and respectful and empowering people into the world. So that's why I love this work and that it, it's so important to me. Gosh, thank you. That was a powerful yeah. way to end this conversation. So I know Kelly and I are so grateful for the time that you ta- have taken today. And I know the awesomes are going to be as well. So Leanne, thank you so much. And I know you'll be around maybe in the hangout group and um, we'll share your social media information as well for anybody who would like to have a follow-up conversation. We may even have to come around and do a part two episode because I know there's a lot we didn't even get to today. So thank you again, Leanne, so much. Thanks y'all for having me. Okay, Kelly, that was a lot of information, wasn't it? It was a lot, but it was so good. Yes. Like I'm just buzzing with all the thoughts that I have about what I should say to my kids, new topics that I can bring up. It was so, so, so good. It really was. And I really loved, I've really tried to practice this, but I really love that she kind of affirmed how important it is to look at this as a conversation over time. And that it really does start from birth and it just evolves and grows as our children grow. And so I thought that was so important to point out. And it felt a little bit affirming to me that maybe I'm not totally (laughs) messing up this conversation already. So I really liked that. Yeah. Well, and you know, for me, as I said, This isn't something that I had really prepped for when I had younger kids. And so it's only been in the last few years that all of a sudden, you know, the wake up call, I was like, my goodness, what am I going to say? How am I going to do this? I haven't laid the groundwork. So I remember just reading some books and thinking about it a lot before I talked to my daughter, who's the oldest. And of course, as I said, we could talk about the care and keeping of you because that is just body issues. You know, that was step one. And that book was made that whole conversation so easy. But as I was thinking about how to talk about sex with her, all of these things that came up in my own life and in faith really all synthesized. And I had learned so much, kind of maybe ironically, growing up um, from my Catholic friends Ah, today. Yes. With, you know, their view of sex as being so sacred and holy because it has the ability to make new life. Right. So... When I was trying to set up my kids for not just the physical part of what's going on in their bodies and what sex is and why it's pleasurable, but I also wanted just being a person of faith to try to incorporate a little bit of that. So I remember when I told my daughter about sex, um, I said, you know, this is like a superpower Yes, that you get when you're about 12 and 13. You can partner with someone to make new life. You are working with God to create a new person. And I said, so it's like a superpower. That's the reason that we don't talk about it with little kids as much, um, because, you know, it's a big thing to hold. Mm. So I said, and just, just like that, even though this is something that your body can do, you're probably not ready for it yet. 
you know, there's all these other things that come along with this physical act. Not only can it create new life, but it's bonding. It's very, very intimate. Um, you know, all these things. So just trying to set up that part of sex as well. And again, that's a continuing conversation, right? I think that made sense to her at 12 and 13 because A, they're horrified. The what goes where? Yes. Like, you're not serious. <laughs> right. And, and I've even had a friend who, even saying, and this is like a continuing conversation too, right? Um, they had talked to their son about it. And they said, you know, it makes babies. And, you know, they were setting this all up in the same way as a conversation of faith. And so at some point they were talking and he said, well, you know, obviously you and mom have had sex three times because there's three kids. <laughs> and they went, no, we've done it more than three times. And he was like, What? Why would you do that? You know, so again, where you're like, oh, I, I guess I didn't explain right as well as I can now. You know, again, it's a continuing conversation. So I loved what she had to say. I loved what she had to say, that it's just going to be continuing something that you talk to your kids about, especially if you're bringing in, you know, the faith components. And and really, I think there's not a whole lot of people that are thinking a 13-year-old, here's some condoms and go at it. Right. You know, this is something that you have to walk your kids through. Like, why are your friends having sex? Consent. Mm. Um, what happens if you go to a party and everybody's drunk? Mm-hmm. How do you treat other people? How do you have respect for other people? So, oh. It's a lot. I mean, I think that's why this conversation can make us a little squirmy, mm-hmm. is that it's just a really big responsibility. But like Leanne said, you get to be the, the authority on this. right? So she set us up so well to be that authority, I think. Definitely, definitely. So those are such great thoughts. Um, if you would like to find out more about Leanne's work, you can find her at her uh, on her website, leannegardner.com. She also is on Facebook at facebook.com slash counseling. She's also a part of our awesome community and is in the Hangout group if you want to have more discussion with her over there. And she sent us a list of resources, which are fantastic. I'm going to put a link to that in today's show description and show notes. So if you would like to have just a further list of resources that she's put together that she believes are good for helping empower these conversations, you'll have access to that as well. So this has been a lot. We hope that it's been helpful. We hope that you've learned some things. I know I have learned a number of things. And we hope too that if this has been helpful, that you will pass it along to friends in your life who might also need some help and guidance in these conversations. So Kelly, I know people are going to want to talk about this episode. Where can they find us all around the web? Well, they can find me on Facebook at facebook.com slash lovewellblog or on Twitter and Instagram at Kelly at Lovewell. Okay, you can find me on Twitter and Instagram at Sorta Awesome Meg. The show is on Instagram at Sorta Awesome Show and we're on Twitter at Sorta Awesome Pod. You can find us anytime on Facebook at facebook.com slash Sorta Awesome. Thanks so much for listening and we'll see y'all next time. Sorta Awesome was created by me, Megan Teets, and is produced each week in collaboration with Kelly Gordon, Rebecca Hoffert, and Laura Tremaine. Visit us on the web at SortaAwesomeShow.com, where you can sign up for the show's newsletter, connect with the Sorta Awesome community, and find show notes for each episode of Sorta Awesome. Music is provided by the band Prager. Find out more at PragerMusic.com. We'll meet you back here next time as we discover, explore, and discuss all the things that make life sorta amazingly awesome.